Hey friends, thank you for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and put into practice. I'm Gwen DeSelm, and it is my privilege to be your host for this time together today. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry and was the founding senior pastor of a church called Fellowship in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering help and hope to everyday pastors through coaching and other resources. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. Do you have any idea how many podcasts are out there? I learned this week that as of January 2023, there are over 3 million podcasts. And those 3 million podcasts produced over 21 million episodes of content last year. Of those 21 million episodes, over 8 million of them are in the category of religion and spirituality. More episodes were published in that category than any other, by far. When I hear those statistics, a couple of thoughts come to mind. First of all, in that sea of content, it's kind of amazing to me that you found us. So thank you for listening to the Word for Everyday Disciples. But the other thought that I have is this. How careful and discerning a follower of Jesus has to be in this day and age because there's a lot of faulty teaching and outright heresy out there. Friends, false teaching is not just a problem we face. It was a problem in the first century church, too. So let's join Dave now as we continue our series on the seven churches of Revelation and Jesus' words to Thyatira, the wayward church. Let's take our Bibles in hand, shall we, and open them up to the book of Revelation, all right? The book of Revelation. Uh, We're engaged in a teaching series called The Seven Churches, and this is the halfway mark, so you're hitting us right smack dab in the middle. In chapters 2 and 3 of this remarkable book, the Lord Jesus Christ writes individual letters or sends individual letters to seven churches that existed back in the first century. We've already seen that he has warm commendation for many parts of what they do, but he also has some grim warnings that he gives them as well. We've seen, for example, the church of Ephesus. We called it the forgetful church. They'd lost their first love, and Jesus had to deal with them. Then there was a church of Smyrna, the suffering church. And that church he gave all sorts of encouragement to. Last week, we took a look at the church of Pergamum. It was a compromising church. And we had some, there's some startling things that the Lord had to say. Because here's the deal. He not only had something to say to them, but we take that as, what does he have to say to us as well? Today, it's the fourth church. The church at Thyatira, call it the wayward church. Interestingly, this was the smallest of all the cities of the seven, the smallest one. However, ironically, it received the largest letter, the longest letter. Smallest city, longest letter. Why? For these group of people, they were facing a different sort of challenge that the first three churches did not have to face. For the first three, the challenge often was outside their ranks. Here, for the first time, we have a church that's dealing with evil inside its ranks. And we'll talk about that person who led that evil in just a moment. 
What do we know about the city of Thyatira? Well, we can glean from historical documents and archaeological digs that notwithstanding its relative small size, Thyatira was a great merchandising city, great place of trade, and it was especially known for its textile industry, its cloth making. Because of the unique mineral content of the water in the area, they were able to come up with this beautiful purple dye that they dyed the clothing with. It was in demand all over the world, unique to Thyatira. Now, some of you may have heard about a person with Thyatira in the book of Acts. The first European convert to Christianity was a woman named Lydia. The Apostle Paul met her in the northern Greece city of Philippi. She was by the riverside, and it says Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth, and Lydia was from the city of Thyatira. So there's a little trivia there for you uh, this morning. But the textile wasn't all they did in that town. For example, the bronze works were highly coveted. The silversmiths made some of the finest specimens in the empire. Its pottery was in great demand. So what did Jesus have to say to this church here? First of all, beginning in verse 18 and 19, he does give some words of commendation. Revelation 2, 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did, now doing more than you did at first. There were four things that the Lord commended them for, if you'd like to make note of that. First of all, he commended them for their love. And the way this word is used in the text, it would refer to both a horizontal love for others as well as a vertical love for God. He said, this is a place where love lives. Incidentally, this is the first time that any church of the seven is committed specifically for the matter of them loving well. It's a great thing in that church. Second, they were committed for their faith the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, is probably better translated faithfulness. So you might want to put that in parenthesis next to the word faith, faithfulness. It has to do with their consistency, their dependability. Though these were relatively young believers, they were really getting a stability to them. Jesus saw that and was quite pleased with it. Third was their service. They served one another within the assembly, but we can also infer from that that they served people in their community. This was a church that had a great reputation in the town. They were known as people who not only talked the talk, but walked the walk. And finally, the Savior commends them for their perseverance. Perseverance. This word literally means courage in the face of great adversity. Courage in the face of great adversity. What was the adversity they faced? Well, it's kind of unique. One of the aspects of Thyatira that was unique to its, that city was that there were various guilds, G-U-I-L-D-S. They were the forerunners to labor unions. In that town, whatever craft that you were uh, part of, you were in that guild. If you were a bronze maker, you had to join the bronze makers guild. If you were a potter, you had to join the pottery guild. If you were into textiles, you had to join the textile guild. Thyatira was a closed shop town. Everybody had to join the guild, all right? So here we have these people now uh, in these unions, if you will, paying the dues, attending the meetings, but it wasn't just a labor issue. 
the various guilds would live together in neighborhoods in the city. So the potters would all live together in this neighborhood. The silversmiths would all live in that neighborhood. So you can see the people worked together, they played together, they lived together here in Thyatira. Now this mandated uh, community or connectivity wasn't bad in and of itself. The problem rose when the guilds would have their various feasts. It sounds so innocuous, isn't it? A feast. Don't think feast. Think Union Hall meets fraternity party. All right? That's what we had going on here. They were drunken orgies. In the midst of that, they would toast the patron god of the guilds, the god Apollo. Apollo, who they called the son of God. As the evening progressed, the drinks would flow, and at a certain time, the young girls would be brought in to entertain the guests, and in some situations, the young boys would be brought in as well. You can imagine, you're a Christian, and you're trying to live in that town, small business owner, craftsman, one who's involved in the trades, and this is the kind of pressure you faced. And yet, apparently, many of the people in the church of Thyatira were able to maintain that difficult line. They were able to be part of the guild without participating in certain behaviors or even certain conversations. And Jesus saw that, their perseverance. And let me just simply say, I know, I know because I've talked with many of you and I've heard about others of you who are in the marketplace in Fort Wayne. And I know that in the midst of the pressures that you face with your integrity, your ethics, your morality, I know that many of you who call FMC home are walking the right lines. And I just want to say, great job. I'm hearing about you. I'm hearing how you now have the credibility to invite others to church because they see something compelling in you. Not weird, but wonderfully different. I've heard of others of you who are sharing your faith as never before because God has given you a sense of favor in the eyes of your fellow workers. So even as Jesus gave that word of commendation to these people here, I would say to you in verse 19, and let this wash over you who have been faithful in the marketplace. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Way to go. Way to go. But then Jesus moves from commendation to condemnation, beginning in verse 20. Take a look. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The context would seem to indicate that this woman of great influence and a kind of a charismatic personality was not only a part of that local church, but she had moved to a position of some significance. This woman, a real woman, is in this church, propagating what you might want to call a new and improved Christianity. As you look at this, we need to understand that now we have a threat not outside the walls, but actually inside the walls. Now, Jezebel would not have been the woman's name. No self-respecting Jewish mother would ever name her daughter Jezebel. The reason why is because the historical Jezebel is arguably the most evil woman in the entire Bible. 
Her story's told back in 1 Kings. She did battle with the prophet Elijah on occasions. But in short, this woman of the Old Testament was conniving, intimidating, deceitful, and utterly vicious. She led thousands of Israelites into idolatry and immorality. This is why Jesus uses that name here. There is now in this church a woman who's a false teacher who's trying to shift the doctrines as it relates to ethics, integrity, and especially morality. They have to wonder, why did the people of that day follow a false teacher like this? For the same reason people in our day follow false teachers. You see, when you're promised sexual freedom, financial blessing, an emotional high, secret knowledge, there's no lack of an audience. And I would suggest to you that as with them, so with us today, we are finding ourselves threatened by false teachers, not simply on a national level, but inside our own city, which we must understand. Jesus is really serious about this. I'll tell you how we know why. Verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God. That is the only time that phrase appears in the whole book of Revelation. The Son of God. Jesus' favorite title for him was to be the Son of Man. Why does he use the phrase Son of God here? Two reasons. First of all, that is what Apollo was called. The patron of the guilds. He was the Son of God. Jesus is making a statement. There is the Son of God, and it's not Apollo. But the second thing he was doing here by declaring that was coming uh, to these people not in humanity. See, the Son of Man is a title that has a point of personal identification. I know what you're going through. I've been there. Hang in there. That's very special to us. None of that here. This has to do with his deity. He's not coming as a sympathetic uh, interceder. He's coming as a divine judge. His eyes, do you see it in there, are blazing. He is hot. Those eyes that see through the, 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 the fantasy, that see through the mirage, he saw the truth. Notice his feet, feet like burnished bronze. What's that speak of? It speaks of feet of utter purity that will crush all evil. This is the strongest picture we've seen yet of the Savior as he presents himself to the church at Thyatira. He sees this woman. He knows now that some are following after her, and he deals with it. It's not that he's rushing to judgment. Look at verse 21. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. What's he saying here? It's not simply going to be judgment one day. There will now be people in that church who I will strike dead as a warning to the other six churches. And so back in that time, there would be people who were dying in the church of Thyatira, judged by Jesus for their immorality. And other churches are going, whoa. Now this threat of false teachers is spoken of throughout scripture. Just a couple more references for you. 
You might want to make note of Jesus, when he talked about the last days in Matthew 24, said, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. I think the thing that strikes me about that quote is that two times we read the word many. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many people. There's another quote from 1 Timothy 4 where Paul writes, the spirit clearly says, that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And then from the apostle Peter, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. There's that next word, many Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. So what do we do with this? Well, I thought in the time we have left, I'm going to give you at least three ways whereby perhaps you can identify false prophets, false teachers, and it might serve you or your kids well. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. You can also support us in this ministry. Just go to davedeselministries.org and click on the Donate button. Dave DeSelm Ministries offers resources for everyday pastors so they can equip the everyday people they lead to become everyday disciples. And one of the ways that we do that is through the Everyday Pastor blog. In each post, Dave offers practical insight and personal experience born of over 40 years of pastoral leadership. This blog covers topics that everyday pastors and leaders need to strengthen their skills, sharpen their vision, and care for their souls. You can find the Everyday Pastor blog on our website, davedesomeministries.org. Now, here's Dave with the rest of today's teaching. Three ways whereby perhaps you can identify false prophets. Here's the first. False prophets are self-proclaimed, not widely recognized. When you think of false prophets, quickly we can, those of us who are older can go back to 1978. Remember Jim Jones? Over 900 people taken to the jungles of Guyana, South America, and there... All sorts of sexual activities were taking place, including with children. When a congressional whistleblower came down, he had that team murdered, and he induced his whole group to commit mass suicide, drinking cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. Then there there was the uh, Heaven's Gate cult back in 1997, a guy named Marshall Applewhite. Nearly 100 followers, all wearing matching purple Nikes, laid in their beds, committed suicide, hoping to rendezvous with an alien spaceship. We think about those kind of things and think, wow, those false prophets. But those aren't the scary ones. The scary ones are those that are within the ranks of the church. Those who would appear to look so good and sound so natural. And as I told you before, there are some that are dangerously close to home. Near or far, this first warning needs to be held. These people are self-proclaimed. They are not accepted by the broader body of Christ. Just a word about that. Though we're a denomination, we are within what I call the biblical mainstream. 
And there are other denominations who are, uh, they may have nuances of doctrine, but we're in the mainstream together. These, though, now are way outside. And none of us would dare call them brothers in Christ because their doctrine is so far out of the mainstream. So when you hear that there are those who are hearing new teaching at some coffee shop or storefront, exciting stuff, stuff that feels so good, got to ask yourself, who testifies for the orthodoxy of these people? Are they seen within the greater body of Christ or are they self-proclaimed false teachers? Second, false teachers offer new teaching that is uh, often feeling-oriented. False teachers appeal to those who are looking to feel God, have a warm glow, have a new spiritual high. They can be especially attractive to young people because even though this is the most wired generation of all, it's the most isolated and lonely one. And when someone offers a warm touch, a great feeling, we have young people who were drawn to this, and I wish it wasn't so, but there are young people who over the years once sat in these seats who are now attracted to places where they feel God via this new teacher. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with good feelings. We're emotional beings. Many of us have had it up to here with dry and dusty orthodoxy. What I'm saying here is, at no time does Scripture ever say, leave with your feelings. It's leave with the truth of Scripture. It's interesting, when the Apostle Paul was sharing the gospel with uh, the people who lived in the town of Berea, great quote that comes from Acts 17.11 that speaks about wisdom. It says, the Bereans received his word with great eagerness, searching the Scriptures daily to see whether what Paul said was true. They compared his teachings with the scriptures they already had. Wise people, wise people. It doesn't matter how excited a person might feel, how good it might seem, if what some prophet has to say does not square with the word of God, it's not from God. By the way, this is why you need to know your Bible. It's why you need to know your Bible. It's also why you need to be in good community. Because before you should get off to a tangent. You need to run it by your friends. Ask them, what are they sensing? Talk to them about what this new teaching is you've been hearing. The value of knowing scripture and being connected to a community can serve you well. It's the isolated lone ranger Christians that are easy pickings for false teachers. Lone rangers are easy pickings for false teachers. Number three, false teachers have no accountability outside of their inner circle. The most trusted teachers I know are the most humble and the most teachable. The teachers that I respect the most are those who are able to put their lives ethically, morally, financially under the withering gaze of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're willing to be counseled. They're willing to be confronted. They're willing to be corrected. When I hear about someone who has no accountability outside of his or her inner circle, red flags begin to wave because all too often it's a breeding ground for heresy. I remember back some years back, there was uh, a tragic number of Christian leaders who fell morally. And I tracked several of them because I'd heard their names before. One of them was censured by his denomination. He resigned. He was put into accountability. 
and he and his wife were in marriage counseling, and for five years, he was totally off the scene. After those five years, a group of Christian leaders affirmed what they'd seen in his life, the changes they'd witnessed, and they reaffirmed him to ministry, and he's doing great now. But for five years, he was under that kind of accountability. In contrast, another leader, moral failure. He was censured by his denomination and pulled his church out of it, set up his own ministry, and said, I'm accountable only to God. And he and his son now lead the organization. And I have to tell you, my respect for that is nowhere. They would not listen. They would not be accountable. And that smells a little suspicious to me. This is a real threat. It's a real threat on the national scene. Those words from Jesus and Paul and Peter are frightening. Many will be deceived. And it's in Fort Wayne. And I'm not talking simply about the major cults. There are storefronts and coffee houses and things going on in Fort Wayne. I talked with one set of parents after first gathering. And they said, I, I know I'd prayed for them. They said, our son is finally out of that group. I said, well, that's good. They said, but the thing is, he's now so burned on all religion that he refuses to come to any church whatsoever. And that's the challenge that you face with false teachers. We must stay alert. We must stay aware. We must do our best to warn one another. How does Jesus end this? Verse 26. To those who are victorious... And do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And they will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them in pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. What's he saying? You who stand with me now will rule with me one day. What a great promise. We'll rule with them. Amazing. That's not all. I will also give them the morning star. What's that? Well, we're told what it is over in chapter 22, verse 16 of Revelation. Revelation twenty two sixteen, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. What's he saying? You'll not only rule for me one day, you will rule with me one day. I will be with you, and we will then experience the rewards of the kingdom. May God give us ears to hear and a willingness to respond with obedience. Thank you so much for joining us for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.